I wonder what kind of week you've had spiritually. Uh, Maybe you've had a fantastic week. You've read your Bible and you've prayed every day and you're taking deep delight in the Lord. Maybe though you've read your Bible and you've prayed every day, but you feel that God is, is kind of distant from you. Maybe you haven't done all of those good religious things because you've been discouraged and you've been wondering, how could God ever love me? I'm a spiritual failure and I'm never going to grow. Let me just stop each one of us right there. It, it is important from time to time to look back on our walk with the Lord and evaluate. But I, I do think we have to be a, a careful about over-evaluating. Uh, we have to be careful to guard ourselves against a kind of spiritual navel-gazing, if you will. Uh, we cannot measure our spiritual growth based upon how we feel today. How we have felt this past week, this past month, or maybe even over the last year. If we really want to grow in Christ, we must take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on the one from whom life and growth comes. If you want to grow, then look to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. And don't stop looking to Jesus. And I promise you this. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you keep looking at Jesus, you keep learning from Him, then in time, you will find that your love for Him will grow. And you will grow. One of the things that I want most for our congregation is growth in grace and godliness. And it is why I'm so glad that our text this morning invites us to take a close look at our Savior. A close look at our Savior, at the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at our Savior in Luke's Gospel. We're going to begin in chapter 3. So if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. That's on page 858 of the Bibles provided. Now, when we began our study of Luke's gospel a couple of weeks ago, we considered that the purpose of Luke's writing was to announce that the good news, that the Savior of the world has arrived, the second Adam, the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised king and son of David, has come to, in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 77 to 78, give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Last week, we saw this proclaimed through the truth that Jesus is our King. He is our Savior. He is our Teacher. And as we continue in our study in Luke's Gospel today, we learn another truth about Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And to communicate this point, Luke returns to a literary strategy of comparison and contrast. In Luke chapter 1, the writer intertwined the lives of John the Baptist and Jesus to compare and contrast them and to show their connection to God's saving purposes in world history. From chapter 1, we learned that John, John the Baptist, would be a prophet in the mold of Elijah who would announce the coming of God's salvation. And Jesus would be the one who would accomplish God's salvation. In Luke chapter 3, this comparison and contrast reemerges, and so does another. Not only is Jesus compared to John the Baptist, but he's also compared to Adam and to Israel. As I mentioned a moment ago, all of this is textured by the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you want a one sentence of what Luke chapter 3 through chapter 4 verse 13 is about, that's it. Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Luke is trying to communicate to us. We've really actually already learned this lesson from Jesus himself. Remember, uh, last week we thought about how Joseph and Mary kind of lost Jesus, only to find him at the temple. And Jesus asked them in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The temple was God's house, not Joseph's house. At 12 years old, Jesus already knew that he was God's son. Luke chapters, uh, chapter 3 through chapter 4 verse 13 is concerned, as I said, with the subject of sonship. Uh, the conclusion of verses 1 to 22 of Luke chapter 3 is that Jesus is God's favored son. 
Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 28 reveal that Jesus is connected to the first son, Adam. And in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we see that Jesus proves that he is God's faithful son. Uh, if you're taking notes this morning, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. The favored son, the first son, and the faithful son. Let's begin by considering our first point, the favored son. And as we do, let's read Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. These 22 verses are packed full. We're given the historical setting to the preaching ministry of John the Baptist there in verses 1 to 3. The reminder of the prophetic nature of his ministry in verses 4 through 6. And the content of his preaching in verses 7 through 17, preparing really for the arrival of the Lord through repentance. The result of this preaching is given there in verses 18 through 20. He was put in prison. And the arrival of the Lord, the favored son, takes place there in verses 21 and 22. Now, you, you may recall that Luke opened his gospel by telling us one of the purposes of his writing was to provide an orderly account of the things that have happened in and through Jesus Christ. Luke's appeal to history and recounting the governmental rulers and religious authorities in power at the time of uh, his and John the Baptist's uh, ministry certainly speaks to the orderly nature of this account. But more than that, when we read these verses, what we need to come to recognize is how the prophets of old were introduced. 
if you were to go back and to read various prophets from the Old Testament, you would find that there would be a recounting of who was in power when the Word of God came to the prophet. In Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Haggai, kings and rulers are all mentioned when the ministry of the prophet is introduced. And the point is that at one level, we're, we're getting uh, here a history from Luke, a, a real, true and accurate history, an important history. But at another level, what we're also getting is a clear signal that the true story of God working to save His people from their sins is continuing on. Here is another prophet that God has inspired, just like He has before. In the days of old, God announced His purposes of salvation and judgment through prophets. And that is what He does through John. And this, is, this reminds us what we're reading about that God promised would take place. If you remember from Luke chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, God promised John's father, Zechariah, that John would go before the Lord and prepare the people for his arrival. And yet there's more. In verses 4 through 6, Luke explicitly quotes the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, to remind us that this is not merely a 30-year-old promise being fulfilled, as though this is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy for John. No, no, no. This is a prophetic promise that is hundreds of years old. Isaiah prophesied as many as some 700 years before John's arrival. In this, what we're learning is that Luke's history of the arrival of the Christ is not merely orderly, but that history itself is being ordered by God for this great climactic event and moment. This also reminds us that John's preaching ministry was ministry in service of another. John, his work was to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, which would enact an, a double purpose, judgment and salvation. And this, this great climactic moment opens with basically a verbal slap in the face. What are the first words off John's lips there in verse 7? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, imagine if you turned up to church this morning and those were the first words that someone said to you. You snake, what are you doing here? I'm not uh, advocating for anyone to greet anyone in that way, shape or form. Uh, but, but I think what, the, what we're trying to make clear here is that at first glance, uh, these, these do not appear to be kind and welcoming words, do they? Uh, think for a moment about them, though. Is it not kind? If John is speaking truth, and he is, is it not kind to warn others that God's wrath is coming? To warn others about an imminent and coming danger? John's Declaration also tells us something about God, doesn't it? He is righteously angry at sin and the sinners who commit sin. In His justice, God will not allow sin and unrepentant sinners to go unpunished. There really is a need to flee from the wrath to come. And that flight takes place through repentance, through turning away from sin. And faith, turning to God's saving mercy revealed in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, John's language about his hearers reveals that they are self-righteous. Sometimes we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And it takes a kind of a forceful kind of rebuke to awaken us to our arrogance and pride. John also points out that they are presumptuous. They presume that God is well and pleased with them because of their heritage, their Jewish descent, their Abraham's children. So John warns them about holding on to their heritage as the ground of their hope for being received into heaven. Don't think or say, I've got Abraham as my father, I'm safe. That is not a sign of true repentance. Nor does a claim to a particular heritage mean that you are on happy terms with the Lord of heaven. Children, youth, young adults, I think that there is some instruction and application here for you. Your parents' faith cannot save you. God has been 
kind to you. If he's given you parents who trust in Jesus Christ and tell you the truth about him. But it won't be enough to save you on the last day. To say, my mom is a Christian. She prays for me every day. Or, I'm an elder's kid. Or, my dad teaches Sunday school. Let me encourage you to talk with your parents or a mature Christian friend today about how you can receive the gospel for yourself by turning from your sins and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. The truth is we cannot claim anything but Him and Him alone for our salvation. The way is being prepared for the Lord. And when the Lord comes, He will be looking for those who are truly sorry for their sins. And yet repentance is more than a feeling of sorrow. It is a change of direction. Repentance takes place when, uh, when and where a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and a true sense of the mercy of God with grief and hatred of his sin turns from it and turns to God with full purpose to endeavor after new obedience. Such repentance is a gracious gift of God. This repentance, it can be discerned too. John has said that there will be real tangible fruit where repentance is present. And where there is not fruit present, there will be fire. In verses 10 to 14, we're given three successive examples of what repentance practically looks like. The crowd, the tax collectors, and the soldiers all ask John what repentance looks like in their lives. John calls for the crowd to repent of selfishness and to be concerned for those in need. He says, you have, so do not hoard. And then the, crowd, the, the tax collectors. The tax collectors, John says, he calls for them to repent of their greed. And repentance, interestingly enough, if you notice for them, it does not look like quitting their jobs, but rather carrying out their jobs justly. In such service, they would reflect God's justice. John calls the soldiers to repent of their practices of extortion. But notice what John tacks on there at the end of verse 14. He says, and be content with your wages. Contentment, you see, is a mark of trust in God. True repentance is filled with faith. All of John's preaching and teaching has led to a sense of anticipation in his hearers. They begin to wonder if he might be the Messiah. But John, he quickly and unequivocally dispels that notion there in verse 16. He says explicitly what Luke has really been saying to us all throughout these first three chapters of his gospel. There is one who is greater. There is one who is mightier than John. And that one is Jesus, we know from chapters 1 and 2. John has been going about the practice of baptizing people as an expression of their repentance of sin. They were being symbolically washed of their uncleanness before God. John's baptism was a public confession of sin and need for God's mercy. And notice what John says about the kind of baptism that Jesus will perform there in verse 16. He says, He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, that's a completely different kind of baptism altogether, isn't it? It's a different kind of baptism than what John is offering. Some Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In other words, some He will regenerate in the power of the Holy Spirit. Awaken them, give them new life. And some He will baptize with fiery judgment. In other words, some He will bathe in His grace. He will gather wheat into His barn. And some He will burn in His wrath. The chaff will meet His unquenchable, unending fire. You see, the coming of the Lord brings with it salvation and judgment. That's always how the prophets proclaimed it in the Old Testament. And it is how this prophet, John the Baptist, is proclaiming it too. Jesus has come to deal with sinners. Some He will save and some He will punish. This is why John preaches a message of repentance. He calls sinners to prepare for the coming of the Lord by repenting, by turning away from their sin and turning to God for forgiveness. Which leads us to ask the question of ourselves. Have we repented? Are we repenting? Are we prepared 
for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come again. And His coming again will involve these two aspects of salvation and judgment. Are we ready? Are we repenting? And think back on John's instructions to the the crowd and the tax collectors and the soldiers. In verses 10 to 14, we see that repentance is real, tangible, and noticeable. Repentance requires real change. It does not merely involve an attitude, but it also involves an action. John did not say to the crowd, to the tax collectors and soldiers, it's okay, there's grace. Now, what did John say? John said, God's grace is being displayed in His coming to save sinners. You see, because there is grace, repent and believe. God is coming to save sinners. So abandon your greed. Flee your theft. Stop your murmuring. Think about the areas of sin that the Holy Spirit has uncovered in your life? Are you turning away from them? Because of God's grace, are you repenting? Or are you becoming recalcitrant? John preached the good news to his hearers, but we can see through his imprisonment that not all viewed John's preaching as the aroma of life. John called Herod the Tetrarch to repent of his sin, his sexual immorality. Herod the Tetrarch was recalcitrant and he viewed John's preaching as the aroma of death. Such is the effect of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a sword that divides. On the one hand, the coming of the Lord is good news for weary saints. On the other, the coming of the Lord is horrifying news for unrepentant sinners. And note that the imprisonment of preachers will never stop the coming of the Lord and His work of redemption. As soon as John the Baptist is put behind bars, the Lord Jesus is put front and center. Now, while there's a chronological disjunction here, clearly verses 21 and 22 took place after John or before John was put in prison, I do think that Luke places these events side by side Precisely to make that point. Nothing will stop the coming of the Lord and His work of redemption. This will be important to keep in mind as the end of Luke's gospel approaches and a ruler will put Jesus in prison and kill Him. But even then, that will not stop God's redemption from being accomplished. All of John's preaching has been hurtling toward this announcement. Not from John, but from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, this happened in connection with Jesus' baptism by John. And we we must be clear, Jesus was not baptized because he was confessing sin like everyone else. No. Jesus was baptized because he wished to identify with sinners. In this act, he identifies with those he came to save. Though he was without sin in his baptism, he publicly confesses that he will now live as a righteous substitute for sinners. This is what God is pleased with. That his son is voluntarily, willingly, lovingly taking up this mission to redeem sinners. And Jesus, he is about to be connected with a long line of sinners who came before him. But he's going to change the very nature of history after them. In his baptism, Jesus' sonship is announced and confirmed. Speaking from heaven in verse 22, God the Father announces that he's pleased with his son and his willingness to take up this mission of saving sinners. You know, interestingly enough, just a little bit later, we're going to see that Adam is going to be called God's son in our text. But we also need to remember that Israel has been called God's son before in the Bible. In Luke, uh, sorry, not Luke, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Israel is called God's son. Jesus is God's son in a different way. 
He has been the Father's Son from all eternity as the second person of the triune Godhead. Here, Jesus is fulfilling really the promise of Isaiah chapter 42 where we read, Behold, my servant whom I will uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Jesus is the Son and Savior who came for sinners. In Jesus' baptism, we also learn that this, this was the right time. The way had been prepared. We've been seeing through various Old Testament references in Luke's gospel that God had an intricate plan from all eternity to redeem and save sinners. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Lord, God's Son, has come. And the Father's favor has rested upon Him. Having considered now that Jesus is God's favored Son, the Son in whom He is well pleased, let's turn now and consider our second point, the first Son. And as we do, let's read Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. And let's see if I can read these names without embarrassing myself too much. Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthew, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of uh, Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kossam, the son of Elamadin, the son of Ir, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, the son of Mena, the son of Mathada, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ruah, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now the first thing you might ask yourself when you come to a list like this, is why? Why is this here? Just kind of from a whole Bible perspective, just one quick word on the importance of why this is here. Because death exists. Right? So death has this steady drumbeat in our world that people are dying and dying and dying. And here, what are we being told? That there is life. And there is life, and there is life. And that gives us hope that there is coming real and true and final life that will overcome that drumbeat of death. That's one of the things that we need to keep in mind when we come across these genealogies. Another part of the answer is because Luke is continuing his comparison and contrast between John and Jesus. John, at the beginning of his ministry... Uh, he, had, uh, he, he had a beginning of his ministry, and now Jesus has his. We see that there in verse 23. At the start of his ministry, John was given a genealogical connection uh, with his father, which takes up, you'll note, less than one verse. Uh, this pattern is followed as Jesus begins his ministry. His genealogical background is given, and it takes up 15 verses. 
Jesus is obviously a more important figure in Luke's gospel, and so is his ministry. And so he's given a more detailed genealogy. Luke uh, reminds us that while, yes, from an earthly perspective, Jesus was viewed as Joseph's son, there was a more fundamental sonship that he possessed. He was God's son, as we learn in verse 22. And yet the mere fact that Luke gives this genealogy of Jesus as connected through Joseph reminds us that Joseph really was his earthly father in a meaningful way. But there's still more. John's purpose in life had been given a background that reaches all the way back to Isaiah. John was the prophet that Isaiah promised would come before the Lord came. But compare this to Jesus, the purpose in Jesus' life, which reaches all the way back to Adam. It was Herman Ritterboss who observed that the ultimate objective of God's redemptive work brings us back to the beginning. What was lost in the first Adam is regained in the second in a much more glorious way. See, when we remember that Luke was the traveling companion of Paul, it is no wonder that he is interested to connect Jesus to Adam. Paul probably shared that with Luke, that truth of what he so powerfully wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. Paul wrote, For as by Adam's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by Jesus' obedience the many will be made righteous. And no less glorious in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And just a little uh, later in that same chapter, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, referring to Jesus. So you see what Luke does here is to take us on a tour, really, of redemptive history. And he shows us how God has been work in it all along. We don't have time to stop and reflect on each and every name, uh, but we must stop and meditate, meditate on a few. Uh, we thought about Adam. We also need to think about Luke's inclusion of David, Judah, and Abraham. Uh, first, you see David there in verse 31. As we thought about last week and the week before that, and perhaps even next week, uh, we will remember that God made a magnificent promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 12 and 13. There God promised David that when he died, God would raise up offspring after David. God promised that he would establish David's kingdom and that David's son would build a house for God's name and that God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When we see Jesus' connection to David, these promises have to be jumping into our minds. Other promises should be jumping into our minds too when we think of Jesus' connection to Judah mentioned there in verse 33. The tribe of Judah is, is hugely significant in the Old Testament. Many of you, uh, perhaps you've been reading through the Bible in a year. You've been reading through the Pentateuch of late. You've been reading through that wonderful book of Numbers. Uh, and you find that uh, Judah is given a prominence, actually, in that book. It's the first tribe is mentioned when the arrangement of the camp takes place. It's the first tribe, I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, that, that leads the congregation out. Judah's in front. It's a tribe that's given special privileges throughout the Old Testament in various ways. And I can't help but wonder if that's because of the special promise received that Judah received in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. While the, the great patriarch Jacob, also known as Israel, is blessing his son Judah, he says this in um, Genesis 49, 10. The scepter, which is a ruler's staff, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. From you, O Bethlehem, is small among Judah, a ruler will come. And to him will be the obedience of the peoples. This son, Jesus, will be the ruler of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And of course, we cannot fail to reflect on Abraham's name in this list. Jesus is obviously connected with the other patriarchs, uh, Isaac and Jacob there in verse 34. But Abraham was arguably far more important than even Isaac and Jacob. It wouldn't be too much to suggest that he was one of the most important figures in all of the Old Testament. He was the one whom God chose to be the father of many nations, according to Genesis 17.5. And in Genesis 22.18, we learn that God promised Abraham that through his offspring, 
The nations of the earth will be blessed. Those promises were passed down to Abraham's offspring, Isaac and Jacob. So you see what Luke is telling us is that Jesus is Abraham's offspring. This is confirmed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, when he writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, Paul says this, who is Christ? Jesus is the telos and goal. He's the end and goal of God's promises to Abraham. But he's also the telos and goal of God's promises to Adam. One brother in this congregation might not forgive me if I failed to mention Genesis 3.15 in connection with this text. So let's make that mention now. Uh, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David, there is a sense in which Luke is calling for us to view Jesus as the promised offspring of Adam. So in Genesis 3.15, we read, I will put enmity between you, Adam, uh, sorry, no, this is the seed, but, uh, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was God's gracious promise to Adam and Eve immediately after they had sinned against God. This promise was of a son, a male son, who would come to defeat depravity, death, and the devil. And is it any wonder that after mentioning Adam, the very next thing in Luke's gospel that happens is Jesus confronts Satan in the wilderness. And the question that should be jumping into our minds is this. Is Jesus really the promised Son of God? Will He be like His father Adam and fail and fall to Satan's temptations like the rest of mankind before Him? Which is summarized in that whole list. Or... Is he the one who will defeat the devil? Well, what we find in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, is that Jesus is the faithful son we've been waiting for. So let's turn now to our third and final point, the faithful son. And as we do, let's read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. First and most obviously, we are moving from the failed son, Adam, to the faithful son, Jesus Christ. And just scanning over these verses, we see that Jesus faced off with Satan in the wilderness. But notice how he got there. Jesus was full of the Spirit and therefore ready to do battle with the evil one. But he was also led by the Spirit. In other words, these temptations were ordained by God. God had a purpose in these temptations. To see Jesus live in trusting obedience where Adam and where Israel and where you and I have failed to. Like Israel, Jesus was led into the wilderness. Think back to the Exodus, the nation of Israel. They're led into the wilderness after God frees them from slavery. And he takes them into the desert to test them 
as we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. We see this replay of Israel's wanderings as Luke tells us that Jesus had been in the desert for 40 days. Those words recall Israel's 40-year desert wanderings. And they also recall Moses' 40-day fast. Just like Israel in the desert and Moses in his fast, Jesus, verse 2, was hungry. Now Jesus was ready for the first temptation. The scene is set. God's favored son is in the desert, standing in the same place Israel was hundreds of years before, and he's hungry. And you may be wondering, what's the point of Jesus replaying Israel's life in the desert? Just to be clear, Jesus is not simply replaying Israel's life here. What he's doing is living a new life, a life that has not been lived before. This new life Jesus must live before God in the desert in the face of these temptations begins with Adam. That's why Jesus' genealogy recounts, is recounted backwards from him to Adam to link these two scenes together and notice what's the nature of the first temptation. It's a food temptation. A food temptation is what Adam faced in the garden. And consider how much greater the difficulty was for Jesus than it was for Adam. Adam was in a beautiful garden where he had everything that he could have ever wanted to eat. And Jesus is in a desert waste where there was nothing that he could have ever wanted to eat. Adam sinned and he was expelled from the garden. Time passed and God called out for himself a special people to be a reflection of his character to the watching world. He called out the nation of Israel and he called them his son. God called Israel out of Egypt to be his people. And what did Israel do? They did the very same thing that Adam did. They rebelled against God in the desert. And one of the tests they faced was a food test. And they failed that test. We need someone else to live the life that we all should have lived. And that is precisely what Jesus is doing for us in the desert. What is happening in this desert scene is huge. Jesus is breaking the cycle of slavery to sin and is forming a new humanity. In the second temptation, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. Jesus came to redeem people from all of the kingdoms of this, of this world. And here he has an opportunity to bring all the peoples of the earth under his rule for seemingly very little cost. It at least won't cost him his life. On the cross. Glory without suffering. It's attractive, isn't it? It's what we want, isn't it? We want good things without the cost of them. Jesus did not come to do the will of Satan and establish an earthly kingdom. He came to do the will of God and to establish a heavenly kingdom. Satan is attempting to break Jesus' allegiance to God and at the same time bring God's pleasure in his Son to an end. Our very salvation is bound up with whether or not Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness in these temptations. And just as with the previous temptation, Jesus sees right through it and he answers him from the word of God. In the third and final temptation, Satan quotes God's word again and twists its meaning, just like he did back in the beginning. Satan has taken a promise of God from Psalm 91 and he has encouraged Jesus to demand that God make good on that promise. The devil is crafty. He, he has had Jesus quote scripture to him. He realizes, recognizes, okay, Jesus, he, he thinks scripture is important. He thinks it's a, authoritative. He obeys it. So here the devil takes up God's words. He hands them to Jesus and says, here, here, obey this one. Jump off the highest point of the temple. Surely you will not die. But there's a huge difference in asking for God's help and demanding it. Satan wants Jesus to demand that God act in a certain way. Jesus would be setting himself up as an authority over God. He would no longer be the one who came to do the will of his Father. He would now be the one who came to make the Father do his will. Jesus, though, is discerning. He knows that God's words come in a context. They come in the context of the whole of God's words. 
And Jesus follows the age-old principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Through these tests, we see that Jesus remains the faithful Son. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to see something more in these temptations than Jesus as a model for how to deal with our temptation. Yes, he, he quotes Scripture, and so should we when we're faced with temptation. To be clear, Jesus is a model for how to deal with temptation, but he is so much more. Notice what verse 13 said about Jesus' temptation. And when the devil had ended every temptation. Now think about that for a moment. Think about how Jesus faced every kind of temptation. Think about that and put that together with what we read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, we need more than our own strength in the face of temptation. We need the strength of Jesus Christ. And what is being communicated here in these temptations is that Jesus is breaking the old pattern of disobedience and rebellion against God. He is representing a new humanity before God. He is faithfully bearing the image of God where Adam, Israel, and we have not. And Jesus will fulfill the pattern of righteousness and faithful obedience that God always intended for Adam and Israel and for us. Jesus has won. Not only has he won a fierce battle with the devil, but he has won a new life for his children that he gives to you and me as we place our faith in him. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read that we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. In these temptations and in the entirety of Jesus' life, he was without sin. This great and utterly unique attribute is what qualifies him and him alone to be our suitable and all-sufficient Savior. So, brothers and sisters, when you are facing great temptation, when, when you are facing what just seems to be a terrible pull, you need to know that Jesus has felt that. And he knows exactly what you are facing. He knows just how enticing the sin is that you're facing. And he knows the full strength of Satan's pull. Because he resisted it to the end. Where you and I have not. And remember that he said no to sin and Satan. So that you in the power of the Holy Spirit can say no too. Look to him. And rejoice in the truth that he has overcome temptation for you. And ask him and plead with him to help you overcome your temptation too. Jesus, you see, he remained sinless in the wilderness. And so proved that he was God's faithful son. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, you need to come to the understanding that the wrath of God is coming. You need to flee the wrath to come. And you flee the wrath to come by abandoning the life of the first son. And by placing your trust in God's favored and faithful son. Jesus is calling sinners like you and me to turn away from our rebellion against God. To turn away from living for ourselves. And to turn to him in faith. Jesus calls each and every one of us to turn from our sin and to turn to faith in Him, believing that He lived the righteous and sinless life that we have not, the life of perfect, righteous, and faithful obedience to God that we have not. He lived it in the wilderness and all the way to the cross. And on the cross, He died as an act of obedience to His Father in heaven. He died bearing the sins and the punishment for all of those who'd ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death on the cross, He conquered sin and death and the devil. And He commands us to believe that in Him there is salvation for all who believe. And I want to urge you to give up your life now to Him, the Lord, the faithful Son. 
when you place your faith in God's favored and faithful son, you become God's child in whom he is well pleased. He loves us. And Christian, whenever you feel like you've you've probably had the feeling in your life that I've, I've had a father that I cannot please. You need to know that you have a father in heaven who is pleased because you are united to his son through faith. And this is where we should conclude. We began this morning by thinking about how Christ is our source of, of life eternal and spiritual growth. May we look on him as our father in heaven does. The favored son in whom our souls delight. He is our hope of fleeing the wrath to come. And may we also remember that where the first son Adam failed, the second Adam, our Savior, remained faithful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for our Lord and Savior, your favored and faithful Son. Oh Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us to always hide ourselves in him, to cling to him as our only hope in life and in death. Lord, to depend upon his righteousness and not our own, for our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And Father, we praise you for the wonders of your salvation, which you planned before the world began. How amazing it is to us that you would send the second Adam to live the life that we have not lived, could not live, and to die the death that our sins deserve, and to be raised as a sign of our acceptance into your heart and home as family and children. Lord, give us increasing faith, we pray and ask. In Jesus' name, amen.